Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 164. This episode's entitled Himalayan Bees Make Psychedelic Honey. Despite being on record as the largest land animal to ever have lived, even larger than the biggest dinosaur, the Argentinosaurus, which clocked in at 130 feet and weighed about 100 tonnes. Blue whales eat something tiny. Krill. From the csmonitor.com website. An article by Olivia Lowenberg. How do blue whales get so humongous? A krill feeding study reveals clues. Blue whales can eat up to four tons of the shrimp-like creatures in a day. As you may have learned in science class or at a museum trip, the massive creatures take in a mouthful of water and krill, then force the water out through their filtering baleen with their tongues, which can weigh as much as an elephant. Or Maybe it's not quite that simple, suggests a new paper in the latest issue of Science magazine. For blue whales, one of our main questions has been, how do they eat efficiently to support that massive body size? Asked Elliot Hazen, an NOAA ecologist, in a press release. Now we know that optimising their feeding behaviour is another specialisation that makes the most of the food available. Former studies suggested that blue whales simply open their mouths and pull krill in when they are hungry. But according to a new study in the latest issue of Science magazine, their feeding behaviour is more nuanced. Dr Hazen and his colleagues hypothesised that baleen whales, like large terrestrial mammals, must be efficient bulk foragers. Blue whales and their baleen whale cousins are known to use bubble netting, a technique in which the whales sometimes swim in teams. will dive below a krill swarm, sending up an enormous fountain of bubbles to alarm and displace the group. The disoriented krill are then much easier to catch. Using digital acoustic recording tags for 55 blue whales off the coast of California, the researchers discovered another tool in the blue whales hunting toolbox. Up to two million krill can swarm together, but not all krill patches are equally dense, and the whales are paying attention. When feeding on a low-density krill patch, blue whales will lunge fewer times per dive to save oxygen, found the researchers. By examining both the maximum number of lunges taken per dive and the krill density within each area, the scientists calculated that blue whales successfully optimise both energy and oxygen to yield the most efficient results. In effect, the enormous mammals have two different feeding modes, conserving energy when prey is scarce and using up more oxygen to dive deep and take in large amounts of prey when krill are abundant. 
The whale's feeding modes may relate to their migration patterns, but that needs further research. Some whales stay in one place year-round, like the pods living in the warm, krill-rich waters off Southern California, while others migrate seasonally. Globally, blue whales are classified as endangered. According to the IUCN Red List, the world's oceans now house between 10,000 and 25,000 blue whales, which is about 5% as many blue whales as lived before the whaling industry brought them to the brink of extinction. Thanks to whaling bans, their numbers are slowly rebounding. The Congo River in Central Africa is one of the world's great rivers. Carrying 1.25 million cubic feet of water, more than 13 Olympic-sized swimming pools into the Atlantic Ocean every second. That's more flow than any other river in the world that's not the Amazon. But even more impressive is the canyon that the lower Congo cuts as it empties out to the sea. It's the deepest river in the world. In fact, it's so deep that we don't really know how deep it is. From the cntraveller.com An article written by Ken Jennings The odd thing about the world's deepest river. There are really two Congo rivers. The upper two and a half thousand miles of the Congo constitutes one of the world's laziest rivers, meandering through Central Africa without ever dropping more than a foot per mile. The flow is remarkably constant because the river's vast length means that somewhere in the Congo Basin is having its rainy season year-round. But the river ends in a white knuckle ride. Until half a million years ago, the Congo River ended in a giant inland lake 225 miles from the ocean. Then the water breached the rocky silver plateau at modern-day Pool Malibo, a wide spot in the river where today, on opposite banks, you'll find Kinshasa and Brazzaville, capitals of the two nations named for the Congo. They're the world's two nearest capital cities to each other, if you don't count Rome and the Vatican. Through this new cut, the Congo River drops away in terrifying rapids, descending a full 12 feet every mile as a torrential amount of water, five times more than the Mississippi carries, zooms towards the ocean. There's no Congo Delta. All the sediment from this newborn escape hatch scoured an amazingly deep gorge at the mouth of the Congo. Most of the world's great rivers end in a maze-like delta of tributaries, but not the Congo. Its water hits the Atlantic Ocean in a single narrow channel, which scientists believe is more than 750 feet deep at some points. That's enough water to submerge Manhattan's iconic MetLife Tower in the river with plenty of room left over for fishing boats to pass overhead. Fast currents can speed up evolution. Biologists love the Congo because it's the first place they've ever found animal populations divided not by mountains or oceans, but by river currents. The river is less than a mile wide here, but entirely new species of fish are evolving on the two banks because impenetrable currents divide their habitats. This seemingly bottomless canyon is known to hold more unique species than almost any other spot on Earth. And from the mindunleashed.org website, Himalayan bees make psychedelic honey. Locals in China, India and Nepal risk their lives to obtain the golden liquid that drips from very particular hives deep in the Himalayan forest. 
This honey is so precious, it is called mad honey for its interesting properties, coveted the world over. Honey from the Himalayan cliff bee results when the largest bee in the world, just over three centimetres long, scavenges pollen from rhododendron flowers. The highland species has access to the flowers, which are normally highly poisonous to humans. The bee has had little alteration to its genes since its habitat is largely undisturbed in the Himalayan mountains. Even mountain dwellers with a shrewdness for climbing would have a difficult time gathering honey from the mad honey hives though. The cliff bee mostly nests at altitudes between 2,500 and 3,000 metres, building very large nests under overhangs on the southwestern faces of vertical cliffs. This Himalayan honeybee's wares are as valuable as gold nonetheless. Many rhododendron species contained grey anotoxins, which is why they are widely known to be poisonous to humans. But the honey made from the same flower has some pretty potent effects on the average Joe or Jane. Mad honey is known to be a powerful hallucinogen and recreational drug, as well as being ascribed many medicinal features. The honey is thought to be effective in treating everything from hypertension and diabetes to poor sexual performance when taken in small doses. In large doses, however, it can be highly toxic and even fatal. There are legends of yogis living in the area that were like medicine men who could administer the right dose to humans seeking the flower's more desirable qualities without killing themselves by eating the honey. In small amounts, the honey is intoxicating, giving a feeling of relaxation and a pleasant dizziness and tingling sensation. With slightly larger amounts, it can be hallucinogenic, although there is little scientific literature regarding its effects. When taken in larger doses, however, mad honey can cause rhododendron poisoning, or honey intoxication which is characterised by vomiting, progressive muscle weakening and heart irregularities. And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 164 of the Origins podcast show notes, there is a photograph of someone collecting honey and a short video to go with the article. Probably worth a look if you're interested. And from theworddetective.com, the word swell. Dear Word Detective, what is the origin of the word swell? As in, that cat lover is a swell guy. And, swell guy indeed. Try, that cat lover is a royal sucker. In addition to the pack now infesting our house, we now have two or three who regularly show up on our front porch looking for a handout. The use of swell in your example as an adjective meaning pleasant, kind, generous is actually a fairly recent development of the word and first appeared in print in the 1920s. Swell as an interjection meaning something from excellent to just that's fine is even more recent, first found in the 1930s. Swell, said Mabel, placing the document in her vanity bag. P.G. Woodhouse, Luck of the Bodkins, 1935. Our English word swell is, of course, much older, first appearing in Old English from Germanic roots as the verb swellen, meaning to grow or make larger. 
Fun fact. The past participle of swellen in Old English was swollen, which we still use as the past participle of swell, as in swollen ankles. In general, our English swell has stuck fairly close to the original meaning of growing larger, as elaborated in the English Oxford Dictionary definition of the verb. To become larger in bulk, increase in size, by pressure from within, as by absorption of moisture or of material in the process of growth, by inflation with air or gas, etc. To become distended or filled out, especially to undergo abnormal or morbid increase of size as the result of infection or injury. As a noun, swell has meant in general an increase in size, elevation, as a hill, or volume or intensity, as in music. Long rolling waves in the sea are called swells, and if they're very deep and powerful, as from a big storm, they are known as ground swells a term now used to mean powerful changes in public opinion. Figuratively, swell was used in the 18th century to mean arrogant or pretentious behaviour. The softness of foppery, the swell of insolence, the liveliness of levity, 1751. And a bit later, swell became more positive slang for a stylishly dressed gentleman. From there, swell took on the meaning of a distinguished person one who is good at something. This gave us, in the early 19th century, the use of swell as an adjective meaning stylish, first-rate, distinguished. Why are we not to interfere with politics as much as the swell ladies in London? B. Disraeli, 1845. A sense which was, over time, weakened to the point that swell came to mean simply OK, fine, nice, pleasant. We're eating at the lake, we could have a swell time. Arthur Miller, 1947. Swell in this diluted sense is now largely a US usage, and this being the age of cynicism, it's rarely used except in an ironic or sarcastic sense. You left your wallet at home? Swell. Which is too bad. There's an uncomplicated charm to swell used sincerely. Alice Roosevelt packed three large trunks, two equally large hat boxes, a steamer trunk, a special box for her side saddle, and lots more bags and boxes for her grand goodwill cruise to the East Asia in 1905. Among her necessities in those trunks were several bridesmaid outfits that she had worn that spring, and petticoats with lace and embroidery ruffles that had their own small trains. She was, after all, the President's daughter, which made her a princess in all but title, and she conducted herself accordingly. For all her twenty-one years she had been the centre of attention wherever she appeared. Moreover, the timing of this voyage made certain that amid an 83-member diplomatic delegation, including seven senators and 23 congressmen, headed by Secretary of War, future President and Chief Justice William Howard Taft, Alice would be a brighter star than ever. From the SmithsonianMag.com website, Global diplomacy was in Theodore Roosevelt's hands, but his daughter stole the show. And this is written by Ernest B. Ferguson. When they sailed from San Francisco aboard the SS Manchuria that July 8, her father Theodore was trying to bring Russian and Japanese diplomats together to negotiate an end to a costly war. A few weeks earlier, the Japanese Navy had virtually demolished the Russian fleet in the Battle of Tsushima. From this position of strength the Japanese government secretly asked Roosevelt to persuade the Russians to talk peace. While all this was going on, the irrepressible Alice was lifting the eyebrows of her holder shipmates as they crossed the Pacific. She wrote later that she felt it her 
pleasurable duty to stir them up from time to time. So she smoked when few ladies did, learned the hula in Hawaii, took a few pot shots at passing targets with her pocket revolver, and splashed fully clad in an onboard pool. By the time they reached Yokohama, the Russians and Japanese had agreed to talk, and everyone named Roosevelt was automatically a popular hero in Japan. The city welcomed them with flags flying and fireworks bursting. On the short trip to Tokyo, crowds at trackside chanted greetings. For four days in the capital, the Americans were fated more grandly than royalty was usually treated. With countless bows and curtsies, they were presented to the emperor and his family, and to Alice's delight, she was loaded with gifts at every turn. I was a frankly unashamed pig, she wrote. But she was not overly impressed by an exhibition of sumo wrestling. Huge, fat men, as big as Secretary Taft himself. Presumably she did not know that while most of the party was being entertained, Taft himself was having unannounced conversations with Prime Minister Katsura. Those resulted in a memorandum of understanding that would remain secret for 20 years. In it, the two nations would acknowledge each other's strategic interests in East Asia, with the United States recognising Japan's domination of Korea, while Japan disavowed any aggressive designs on the newly acquired American sovereignty over the Philippine Islands. Consolidating that Philippine link was the next purpose of the Taft and Roosevelt voyage to East Asia. Thousands of paper lanterns lit the station in Tokyo, as more shouts of approval sent the delegation off to the ancient Japanese capital of Kyoto, which staged a cherry blossom festival for them, although the blossoms of spring were long gone. Then sailing from Kobe amid more fireworks, they bade Japan temporary goodbye after a brief stop at Nagasaki, a city that would figure in world headlines 40 Augusts later. Although Taft would become President and later Chief Justice of the United States, his earlier service as a Governor-General of the Philippines may have been the most important work of his whole career. After US seizure of the islands in the Spanish-American War, native Filipino forces continued to fight for independence until they were bloodily repressed by American troops. Taft headed the commission that set up a semi-independent government and had earned a benevolent image by the time he departed in 1904. Now returning to Manila a year later, he was greeted with what Alice called extraordinary enthusiasm and affection. And so, of course, was she. American flags, soldiers, sailors and marching bands seemed everywhere, and despite beastly hot weather, welcomes and celebrations went on day and night. Alice thought Taft was charmingly light-footed in a traditional dance called the Rigodon. From Manila, they sailed from island to island, and at every opportunity Alice dawdled with Nicholas Longworth III, the dashing, mustachioed congressman from Ohio, who would soon become her husband. Nick had eager competition along the way, on the island of Jolo during entertainments that Alice said were like comic opera. The Sultan of Sulu presented her with a magnificent pearl ring, and the papers back home said he had proposed marriage. But she managed to remain single as they made their way back to Manila and sailed to their next stop in Hong Kong en route to Peking, now Beijing. The peak of her visit to the Chinese capital was a reception by Empress Sixi, one of the great women rulers in history who looked down from a throne three steps above the rest of humankind. On to Korea by battleship and train to Seoul, which to Alice was a sad sight. She felt immediately that Korea, reluctant and helpless, was sliding into the grasp of Japan. By then she was becoming weary of all the grandeur, after the emperor received them in unnoteworthy, smallish surroundings. She sought distraction by riding into the hills, 
where she discovered that Korean horses tend to bite foreigners. One, she recalled, seemed to have a particular aversion to me. So she stood back and made a face at it, and it laid back its ears and bared its yellow teeth, struggling to shake off the groom in its effort to get at me. In early October, she was eager to return to Japan on her way home, but when they arrived there, she was surprised at what she found. In their absence, Japan and Russia had formalized peace terms by signing the Treaty of Portsmouth. For overseeing it, Theodore Roosevelt would receive the first Nobel Peace Prize ever awarded to an American. Because of it, Alice wrote, Americans were about as unpopular as they had been popular before. I have never seen a more complete change. As victors in the war, the Japanese felt they had been short-changed by the treaty. Although officials still were typically courteous, public anti-American demonstrations broke out, some so violent that US citizens were advised to identify themselves as English. The last ceremonies sending the American delegation back across the Pacific were nothing like what had greeted them a couple of months earlier. Yet there was one final happy note. Alice was surprised again to receive dozens of beautifully hand-drawn postcards addressed to her father and celebrating Japanese-American friendship. Many were obviously created before the treaty was completed, in the weeks while Taft, Roosevelt and company toured the Orient. Today those cards, along with imperial portraits and some of the other lavish gifts that Alice brought home, plus hundreds of photographs of the voyage, are a bright feature of the Alice Roosevelt archive in the Smithsonian Institution's Freer Gallery of Art and Arthur M. Sackler Gallery in Washington, D.C. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to this article in episode 164, there's a couple of really clear photographs of the tour, plus a rare recording of Alice Roosevelt's voice. From the Guardian.com website, a story by Joshua Robertson. 100 million year old fossils shed new light on Australia's ancient inland sea. The discovery of 100 million year old fossils in outback Queensland has shed new light on creatures from Australia's ancient inland sea. The skull of a giant predator fish called Kuyu which revealed for the first time its formidable teeth, was unearthed last month at a farm near Julia Creek in the state's northwest by paleontologist Timothy Holland. This was followed weeks later by another remarkable find, a fossilised clam containing up to 30 small fish, Holland says rate as the best preserved specimens from the ancient sea that existed when Australia and Antarctica were one continent. I was looking at a spot where there'd been fossils found years before, and I was turning over these slabs of mudstone, and I guess I just grabbed onto the right one and flipped it over, Holland said. I could see these massive jaws and the eye socket of this very large fish, almost like it was staring up at me. Holland said this specimen of the Kuyu, a three-metre fish threatened only by sharks or large marine reptiles, had a very well-preserved upper jaw which shows for the first time that this fish had larger teeth than previously thought. Instead of comb-like teeth, the Kuyu boasted long pointed conical teeth which were excellent for latching onto slippery fish prey. On a subsequent return to the site to find a missing piece of the Kuyu's skull, Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology student Paul Turr made the highly unusual find of small fish, their skeletons preserved whole inside the clam, just 20 metres away. We hardly have any small fish preserved from the inland sea, Holland said. They seem to have all been eaten up by predators, 
or became jumbled up through currents or scavengers have got to the remains. But it seems like these little fish were somehow protected inside the shell of this clam, which is amazing. Paul was looking for small things because he studies trace fossils and burrows, so he kind of had his eye in looking for things that other people may have missed. Both fossils went on display this week in the Chronosaurus Corner Museum in nearby Richmond. And if you visit the show notes, there's three particularly good photographs of the fossils. And whilst we're down under, from the abc.net.au website, a story by Selena Ross. Researchers suggest a new twist in Darwin's theory of evolution. The collision of continents may be a major driver of evolution as researchers take a new perspective on Darwin's theory of natural selection. A team of international scientists led by the University of Tasmania has given a new twist to Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. Lead author, distinguished professor Ross Large, said their research suggested that the motion of tectonic plates, especially the collision of continents, was the major driver of evolutionary change on Earth over the past 500 million years. The researchers collected 4,000 samples of pyrite, or iron sulphide, grains taken from ancient seafloor mudstone from around the world. They used lasers on the samples to determine the amount of trace elements in the ocean over the past 500 million years, including nickel, cobalt, lead and arsenic. All living organisms need trace elements in their system to survive, including humans. The geologist's theory states that when the Earth's tectonic plates collide, mountains build and erode. That in turn increases the flow of trace element nutrients into the ocean. When the trace element levels are high, marine species can thrive and evolution speeds up. Professor Large said periods of Earth stability led to low trace element flow and have the opposite effect. These periods where there's very little trace elements, then that leads to phytoplankton dying off, and then up the chain the other biggest species dying off, to the point of the extreme case being a mass extinction, he said. The researchers found significant variation in the levels of trace elements over time. Professor Large said that led to waves of evolutionary change. It became obvious that big changes up to a thousand times in some trace elements between the minimum points and the maximum points. So you can imagine that that has affected the species in the ocean dramatically, he said. He said the findings were being described as a twist to Darwin's theory. In that we'd suggest that it's not a random process, evolution, It's actually being driven by the engine that drives the earth, he said. The fact that we've now been able to come up with nutrient curves through time and relate those to the tectonic processes is the first time we've had a good correlation between the two events. The scientists want to analyse another 6,000 samples over the next five years to provide a more definitive picture of life on earth. And from the foxnews.com Jupiter's great red spot isn't what we thought it was, says some researchers. Scientists have made their own version of Jupiter's great red spot in a lab and it suggests that the spot's cause is very different from what's been postulated. An existing theory holds that the spot is a result of chemicals underneath the planet's clouds. But following the new research, Experts say that the sun is responsible for the colour. Sunlight may break up chemicals in Jupiter's atmosphere. Scientists in Pasadena, California came to the conclusion after recreating the effects at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They were able to get a spot-like red effect by directing ultraviolet light at ammonia and acetylene, gases that are both found on the planet. Their new theory Most of the great red spot is actually pretty bland in colour, beneath the upper cloud layer of reddish material, says a researcher. Under the reddish sunburn, the clouds are probably whitish or greyish. So why is it confined to just one spot? 
The great red spot reaches much higher altitudes than clouds elsewhere on Jupiter, the expert notes. The spot is actually a storm, with winds of up to hundreds of miles per hour, the Daily Mail reports. Wind in the area brings ammonia particles closer to the sun, and a vortex keeps them there, the researchers say. The spot, by the way, is a lot smaller than it used to be. Archaeologists excavating a medieval Benedictine nunnery in Oxford in England have shed light on the darker side of convent life. From the huffingtonpost.co.uk website, an article by Sarah C. Nelson. Sex, mischief and witches, the dark side of life in a medieval Oxford nunnery. And this story has some good photographs and things to go with it, so definitely worth a visit to the show notes. The excavation of the Littlemore Priory, which was founded in 1110 and dissolved in 1525, has revealed nearly 100 skeletons of men, women and children. Among these are a series of very unusual burials, including the remains of a woman buried in the face-down position. Team leader Paul Murray of John Moore Heritage Services said in a statement, This was perhaps a penitential act to atone for their sins or the sins of their families. Her lower legs had been truncated by the later internment of an infant. Speaking to the BBC, Murray added, it's unusual for someone so young to be buried within the church, and sometimes women found in prone positions are considered to be witches. Other remains revealed a victim who was the victim of a blunt force trauma to the back of the head, a stillborn child, and a leper. The Priory had a controversial history. In her book, Medieval English Nunneries, Eileen Power describes it as in such grave disorder that it might justly be described as one of the worst nunneries of which records survived. This was largely due to a particularly bad prioress, Catherine Wells. Records cite a visit from the Bishop of Atwater in 1517. With his report stating Catherine had borne an illegitimate daughter with a priest from Kent, she was also accused of asking the nuns to lie on her behalf about the affair and was alleged to have stolen items from the nunnery, including candlesticks and pots, to provide a dowry for her daughter. A further visit in 1518 bore more scandal, with complaints the prioress played and romped with boys in the cloister and that after she was placed in the stocks, she was rescued by three nuns who broke down the door burned the stocks and smashed a window to escape. There were allegations the prioress had put one nun in the stocks without cause and that she had hit another on the head with fists and feet, correcting her in an immoderate way. The tales are thought to have provided justification as to why Cardinal Wolseley eventually dissolved the house seven years later. But Murray believes the stories as reported by Supreme Head of the Church of England's Henry VIII's commissioners are tainted to at least some degree. He said a truer picture would have been of a community of nuns whose daily routine would have been largely related to the three Benedictine ideals, divine service, study and labour. In addition, the priory can be viewed as a business, managing lands and labourers who worked it, producing, buying and selling goods, taking in borders, as well as keeping accounts of all these activities. The children with debilitating illnesses and the leprosy sufferer may attest to the caring, nursing element of the priory. The complaints made about the nuns when they played and romped with boys in the cloister and their refusal to be corrected perhaps reveals something about the nuns' caring nature 
and an element of free spirit. The remains of the bodies will eventually be buried on consecrated ground after further analysis by researchers at Reading University. And from the todayifoundout.com The Unwilling Soldier of Three Armies And this is by Carl Smallwood A lot of things happened on D-Day. The largest seaborne invasion in history took place. James Scotty Doohan from Star Trek fame was shot six times by his fellow countrymen. And Mad Jack Churchill stormed the beach with a sword and a bow. Another unusual thing that took place was the capture of what initially was assumed to be a Japanese soldier in a German uniform by American paratroopers. As it turned out, this soldier was neither Japanese nor German and was in fact a young Korean man who through a bizarre series of incidents had been conscripted to fight for the Soviets, the Japanese and the Germans during World War II. This is the story of Yang Kyung Jong. Little is known about Yang's life prior to his service in World War II, other than that he was a native Korean who happened to be living in Japanese-controlled Manchuria at the start of World War II. Due to this, Yang found himself conscripted against his will in 1938 and forced to serve in the Kwantung Army at just 18 years old. After basic training, Yang was sent to take part in what has since become known as the Battles of Kalkargol along the borders of Manchuria. These battles were fought mostly between the Kwantung Army and a combined force consisting of Mongolian and Soviet troops. The two countries were allies at the time, along the Kalkar River, which the Japanese insisted fell within the borders of Manchuria, despite the claims to the contrary from Mongolia. During one particularly heated battle, Yang was captured by the Soviets in 1939 and sent to a labour camp. If the Soviet Union hadn't suffered intense casualties fighting Nazi Germany on the Eastern Front in the latter half of the war, this is probably where Yang would have stayed for the duration of World War II. But as its pool of able-bodied men had been severely depleted by extensive engagements against the Nazis, Soviet military officials made the decision in 1942 to replenish their fighting force by drafting thousands of POWs. Among the soldiers drafted was Yang, who was once again forcibly made to join the fight in World War II, this time under the Soviet flag. Yang's service with the Soviets lasted about a year, during which time he took place in numerous engagements along the Eastern Front, most notably the Third Battle of Kharkov. It was in this battle that he found himself once again a prisoner of war for yet another nation. The Germans were apparently unconcerned with how a Korean had come to end up fighting in Ukraine for the Soviets and simply took him prisoner along with hundreds of other soldiers. Again, the interesting part about Yang's story would likely have ended here if the Nazis weren't in the habit of allowing prisoners they didn't execute to volunteer to serve with the Weimark following their capture. As a result of this practice, Yang was conscripted to fight in a German Osterbatonia, literally East Battalion, in the 709th Division of the Weimark. For the curious, Osterbatonia were small battalions of men comprised of volunteers from the numerous regions of Europe Nazi Germany controlled. These were folded into larger units of German soldiers to serve as shock troops and back up the more experienced Weimarked battalions. After being conscripted to fight for the Third Reich, Yang was sent to help defend the Contentum Peninsula in France shortly before D-Day. When D-Day arrived and Allied troops successfully stormed the beaches, Yang was amongst a handful of soldiers captured by the United States 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment. Initially it was reported by Lieutenant Robert Brewer of the 506th that they'd captured four Asians in German uniform. 
While this was technically true, the 506th mistakenly believed the four men, Yang included, were Japanese. In reality, three of the men hailed from Turkestan, while Yang, as already noted, was of Korean heritage. Unable to communicate with Yang due to him not being fluent in either English or German, Yang was sent to yet another POW camp, this time in Britain, where he mercifully remained until the end of the war. When World War II ended, Yang chose not to return home, but instead immigrated to the United States, where once again his story becomes hazy. The only thing we can find for sure about Yang's life after World War II is that he eventually ended up settling in Cook County, Illinois, where he quietly passed away in 1992. Very unfortunately for those of us who like all the little details of a story, such as Yang's thoughts on his experiences in World War II and how he got through it all, after the war, Yang never talked publicly about his World War II misadventure. In fact, according to a December 2002 article on Yang that appeared in Weekly Korea, he didn't even discuss it with his three children, leaving us to wonder... And from TheMentalFloss.com, a story by Bill Domain. Sex in a Box. The Twisted History of Twister. If it hadn't been for Johnny Carson, Twister may never have gotten off the ground. On the May 3, 1966 episode of The Tonight Show, Carson took a few minutes to demonstrate the little-known new party game. His guest that night was the blonde bombshell actress Eva Gabor. After a few right foot reds and left hand blues, Carson and Gabor were playfully entangled and the studio audience was in hysterics. Twister went on to sell more than three million copies over the next year. The game that ties you up in knots sprang from the imagination of a St. Paul-based adman inventor named Ray and Geyer in 1965. Geyer's firm, the Reynolds Geyer Agency of Design, was hired to do a local back-to-school promotional display for Johnson brand shoe polish. As Geyer tinkered with a coloured polka dot paper mat to highlight kids' shoes, he realised he might be onto something bigger a game where people acted as the game pieces. Gaia first called his invention King's Footsie, testing it out on some fellow artists and designers. The fun that four people were having while crammed into provocative shapes onto a 4x6 mat was all Gaia needed to see. It didn't make any difference what the game was at that point, Gaia told me, because we began to laugh so hard that it was obvious we were onto something. Gaia pitched King's Footsie to 3M, but they passed. He then hired game designers Charles F. Folly and Neil Rabbins to help him further develop the idea. The three of them came up with eight different game ideas for the polka dot mat. The obvious winner was called Pretzel, a test of balance and skill that eventually became Twister. Then they licensed Pretzel to Milton Bradley, and that's where the story gets, well... Twisted. Some accounts say that the company changed the name to Twister against Gaia's wishes. But Gaia says that the name Pretzel was not legally available. Still, Twister didn't seem to have the positive resonance that Pretzel did, Gaia says. Nor did it really describe the game that well. But it's solid proof that it doesn't matter what you call something. Once you name it, that's what it is. Other accounts claim that Foley and Rabbins walked off with the patent, taking credit for the invention. It's true that theirs are the only names on the patent, but according to an interview with Rabbins, on the day they applied for the patent, they signed the rights over to Gaia. They made a verbal agreement with him to get a certain percentage of the profits. But Rabbins says it was not honoured. He and Foley soon went on their own way, starting their own toy company. Gaia remembers it differently, 
There is a patent and quite frankly I wasn't part of it. Foley and Rabbins did a fabulous job and we worked together on it. I feel badly that they didn't stick around to develop a division of our company. People have a tendency to attribute new products to one person. And I've never, in any of the products I've developed, seen it happen that one person did it. You share the ideas and it's a process. Meanwhile, back in 1965, some executives at Milton Bradley were reportedly uncomfortable with Twister's sexual undercurrent and felt it went against the company's clean image. To others, the game, one vinyl mat, one plastic spinner, seemed like a profit-making dream. But in its first months on the market, Twister barely sold at all. Retailers were confused by it. Sears didn't think it was appropriate for their catalogue, recalls Gaia. Just as Milton Bradley was about to give up hope, the PR firm that was promoting Twister tried a last-ditch idea, pushing it on to The Tonight Show. After the spectacle of Carson and Gabor entwined, Gaia says, people were lined up 50 deep at Abercrombie & Fitch the next day in New York, and Twister was born. One of Milton Bradley's competitors accused them of selling sex in a box, but they countered with TV commercials that pushed it as a fun game for the whole family. Looking at the commercials now, there is something slightly disquieting about the thought of a multi-generation pile-on. But in the 60s, there was no stopping Twister. It was named Game of the Year in 1967, and like the hula hoop, it became one of the biggest fad toys of the decade. Gaia attributes part of its success to timing. Ideas that become iconic tend to break rules or norms. Twister broke the rules in a social setting. People had not up to that point been granted the possibility of being that close and enjoying it in a group setting. Over 65 million people are said to have now played Twister and it has found its way into all aspects of pop culture. Weird Al Yankovic and R.E.M. have sung about it. Bill and Ted beat death in a game of it in one of their movies. The characters on Friends have played it. Twister tournaments have become popular fundraising events for college fraternities and sororities. And in 1987, 4,160 students at the University of Massachusetts set a world record laying out mats for one big tangled marathon of Twister. As for the game's creators, Foley and Rabbins went on to invent a few now defunct games, such as Grab-A-Loop and Bing Bang Boing, as well as the first plastic handcuffs. And in 1969, Guy helped pioneer another landmark toy, the Nerf Ball. He remains an active designer with his latest invention, a new backyard game called King's Court. Now the following story is definitely worth a visit to the show notes because of its interesting photographs and the video that goes with it. From the smithsonianmag.com website how thousands of dead bugs became a mesmerizing work of extraordinary beauty. And this is by Alicia Alt. Jennifer Angus's artwork is startling, especially when it dawns on you that what is on view is not beautifully drawn, patterned wallpaper. Depending on your mindset, it's either a nightmarishly freakish or beautifully mesmerizing assemblage of insects. Beyond the visceral gut reaction, a deeper provocation comes with the ideas behind her work. What is beauty? What does it say about the power of nature? Or man's quest to control nature? What about man's impact on the planet? Angus, who's in the Midnight Garden, is on display at the Renwick Gallery of the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C., does not shy away from expressing her own thoughts about what might otherwise be taken as an abstraction. She aims to play with perceptions, to challenge hard and fast beliefs about the insect world and to stir a broader thought process. Over the last decade or so, 
She specialised in what she calls a kind of over-the-top grotesque aesthetic, pinning dead insects to gallery walls in installations that evoke a fussy but dark Victorian sensibility. The show's curator, Nicholas Bell, pushed her to go beyond her routine, says Angus, as I tried to consider it in a more contemporary way. I loosened up a bit, she adds. The installation has its orderly parts, neatly arranged patterns in concentric circles, squares and other shapes, all made up of a variety of insects, including thorny sticks, moving leaves, white-winged cicadas, clear-winged cicadas, blue-winged cicadas, brown-winged cicadas, katydids, green stag beetles and several varieties of grasshoppers. But it's also animated by swarms of cicadas seemingly ready to fly off the walls. Six oversized skulls, outlined and filled in by hundreds of weevils, anchor the installation as a recurring theme at chair rail level. A pinkish floor-to-ceiling wash, a dye extract that comes from the cochineal, a scale insect, gives the whole scene a day of the dead feel. The skull is a potent motif, says Angus. It has become iconic in pop culture, but it is also still a signifier of death. Indeed, she's using them as a reminder to viewers. There are at least 5,000 dead things in here, she says, but she wants that to be a conversation starter and expects that many people will come in and ask, how many thousands of insects died for this show? It's a good question, Angus says. I want people to ask that. None of the insects she uses are endangered. There are disappearing species, but most of them are threatened because of loss of habitat, not over-collection, she says. Insects, a renewable resource, are at risk because of human incursions, Angus says. But unlike birds or bees or turtles or whales or wolves, insects aren't so sexy, she asks. They are important, however, to the ecosystem, pollinating plants that humans and animals need to survive and decomposing matter. We are in a culture where insects are not highly valued, agrees Bell. Angus put them in a setting that forces people to pay attention, he says. At first, they may not realise what they are seeing, but as they get closer, it becomes clearer that they are indeed, surrounded by very large dead insects says Bell, and that's an interesting thing to watch. The insects in her show are perhaps less threatening than those encountered at home or in the wild, in part because they are dead, but also because she's imposed some order on them. And they are colourful and beautiful in their own way. Angus hopes that people will think about insects differently when they leave, she says. In the process of viewing the exhibit, people have to negotiate their preconceived concepts about what insects are, and I think that's okay, says Bell. Angus has not always been the insect lady. It's something she came to accidentally. The Edmonton, Alberta native's first love was archaeology, an interest that fizzled out in her first year at the University of British Columbia. She blamed her waning focus on a boring professor and dropped out of school. While working ten days on and five days off on a ferry that ran between Vancouver Island and Vancouver, she began taking art courses, like weaving. She found a new love, patterns. It gave her new direction, so she pursued and won a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree from the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design in 1984 and then a Master of Fine Arts from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in 1991. Ten years later, she joined the University of Wisconsin-Madison faculty, where she is now a professor of design studies. That position gives her the luxury to pursue her art. Her initial interest was in textiles, more specifically the patterns that can be created with cloth and other textiles. She has designed textiles and wallpaper, and she studied the interweaving of cloth and culture. That is what the patterns say about the wearer or the society. During forays to Southeast Asia, for instance, Angus learned that textile patterns often signify status or tribal identity, 
or even that the wearer is pregnant. On a trip to northern Thailand in the mid-1980s, she saw a woman from the Karen tribe wearing a singing shawl that had fringe decorated with what appeared to be shiny green fake fingernails, but were in fact the hard exterior wings of a type of beetle. It was a pivotal moment. She'd never thought of insects as beautiful, merely as annoyances. She was entranced, she says. The notion of weaving her two loves, patterns and insects, together began to evolve over the subsequent trips to Southeast Asia in the early 90s. During an artist residency in Tokyo in 1995, Angus started creating insect dioramas, complete with kimono-wearing rhino beetles. She was aided by a few schoolboys who were regular visitors to her studio and, like her, shared a fascination for insects. Angus learned that in Japan it is not uncommon for children to keep insects as pets. The project sort of reached a natural conclusion over a period of five years, with literally a three-ring bug circus. In that piece created in 2000, she posed insects as strongmen, lifting weights in one ring, a lion tamer scenario in another, and two beetles at a water bowl in the third. Angus then began doing further installations that incorporated both insects and elaborate patterns. Pattern can be just a visual stimulus, but it has the potential for so much more. To tell a story, says Angus. The stories Angus tells in her pieces are of transformation, from the unknown to the known, from off-putting to enchanting. Each insect has a story where it came from, how it was collected and how it ended up in her possession, and how she prepared it for the exhibit, and how it was chosen to be part of her art. She has a collection of at least 30,000 insects, ranging in price from 25 cents to $20 a piece, which are reused from show to show, and put up in storage in plastic bins, with mothballs to ward off insect predators like mites at her university and home studios and a one-roomed schoolhouse she has converted. She purchased the insects primarily from a dealer in France, who in turn sources them mostly from indigenous people in Southeast Asia. If she can get farmed insects, she will use them. I get pretty much the same three questions all the time. Are the insects real? Is this their natural colour? And do I collect them all myself, she says. The insects are definitely real, none have been colour enhanced, and she never collects them herself, although she does prepare them when they arrive from the dealer by humidifying them and placing them with stainless steel entomological pins on foam board. Angus has digitised photos to scale of every insect in her collection, which she uses to design the exhibition once she knows the floor plan. It has to be tightly designed, I have to know how many insects to bring, she says, adding, I can't go. Oh, I wish I brought more cicadas. For the Renwick show, she and two assistants drove the insects from Wisconsin. Once in the gallery, Angus and the assistants began the arduous, multi-day process of hammering the pinned specimens into place according to her design plot. Angus chooses particular species for their wow factor but also for their durability and how well they fit into specific patterns. Some insects will never be a part of an Angus exhibition. Cockroaches, for instance. It's almost like it's so obvious that it's not worth doing, she says. Nor will she use any butterflies, because everybody knows butterflies are beautiful. They provide no chance to educate or stimulate wonder. And that would basically defeat her mission, I'm trying to rehabilitate the image of insects, Angus says. She's hoping that, instead of stomping on them or rolling up the newspaper, people might consider gently escorting them out of the door instead. An Angus show always makes a big impression, and they have proven immensely popular. The artist has exhibited in galleries and small museums in Canada, Australia, England, France, Germany and the US. Being at the Renwick offers the opportunity to perhaps make an even bigger impression, in part because people who can affect environmental policy might see the show. But there's also the general appeal in a big city, 
A lot of people who have never walked into an art museum will come because they want to see the big bugs, says Angus. She expects it to be one of the highest attended of all her shows so far. But she says she's not ready to make a lifelong career of being the insect lady. Doing these installations is very physical. While she thinks she'll eventually become tired of them, she adds, Obviously, this is a significant investment, so they're going to be around for a while. And if you happen to be anywhere near the Smithsonian, this display is on from November 13, 2015 to July 10, 2016 at the Renwick Gallery of the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C. And remember, some good photographs and a video to go with this article. Go to the show notes, click on the link, and it will take you to it. show notes for the podcast are kept at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. The bandwidth for the podcast is provided by TalkShoe at talkshoe.com. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash paulrexy. So until next time, whether it be an Origins podcast or the Mysteries Abound podcast, this is Paul saying bye for now everyone and keep well. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.